kind of ironic, at least my view, any good PLG success story starts with a lot of one-to-one human conversations. So you can't have a successful self-serve model without having a lot of banked conversations. So actually, before we actually like officially started working on the company, I did a whole lot of customer development calls. And mm-hmm. I actually did like more than 100, which in hindsight is overkill. I was actually just looking at our time to conversion data over time. And with our old pricing model, we literally never had anybody who signed up and then converted to paid in the first 30 days. I think the fastest one was maybe 33 days. The longest one was something like... Like 400 days. And then when we rolled out this new pricing model, it's only been around for two months, but we've effectively doubled our customer account. Welcome to Thrivecast. Our today's topic is Common Paper's Onward Journey to Growth. And with me, we have Jake Stein, who's the CEO and founder for the Common Paper, joining us. Jake, welcome to Thrivecast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. The listeners, just maybe a quick background about Jake. First of all, I got to know Jake in the last couple of months, and I was researching about how to manage self-serve agreements or SaaS agreements, particularly for B2B SaaS companies for my new startup. And then I, of course, did the same thing as most people do. I Googled, and then I found so many links. And then on top of the second page, and maybe Jake, you want to probably check on that, on top of the second page yeah, I found Common on Paper, which is about 18, 19 links away. And as some of the listeners might know, I've had my share of dealing with expensive lawyers in the past, crafting and hosting what should have been standard agreements, but they are not. So I found Common Paper to be very refreshing. Jake and I, since then, we've connected a couple of times, and I'm, I'm impressed with what he and his co-founder, Benjamin, have built. To the listeners who don't know Jake yet, so here's my quick attempt to introduce him. Jake graduated from Wharton School with a degree in science, finance, and entrepreneurship, and I found that to be very interesting. No doubt he has blended all these three fields together in his career path that he has taken. He's been a serial entrepreneur. He's co-founded many companies. He's done RU Metrics, which got acquired by, let me say it right, Medgento Commerce. And then he co-founded Stitch, which got acquired by Talent. He spent a couple of years at Talent being an SVP of growth in Early 2021, if I'm not right about Jan or Feb, he and his co-founder, Benjamin, founded Common Paper, and since then, they've been firing on all cylinders. Jake, it's been exciting to host you, and we're going to unpack a lot of things about how Common Paper started on the journey of PLG, and you're on the onward journey towards growth, so let's get started. Here's my first question to you, Jake. You know, Benjamin, should I just call him Ben for simplicity's sake? Yeah, he goes by Ben. So you and Ben, you co-founded... Common Paper. Could you give a quick background about what is Common Paper? What was the inspiration behind starting this company? Sure. So the the inspiration piece is we just found everything around contracts and contracts with customers to be incredibly frustrating, slow, unpredictable, confusing, expensive, and just hard to actually keep track of what you promised to who. So our goal is to fix that. The big picture vision for Common Paper is really to turn contracts, which are interfaces between companies, into APIs instead of digital copies of pieces of paper. There's two pieces to how we do that. One is standardizing the contracts themselves. So what the safe is for early stage fundraising, we've Mm -hmm. created analog contracts for sales. And the other piece is a new kind of software that's built around the standard agreements and interacts with them at the level of structured data, which ends up meaning that sales get closed faster 
and easier to keep track of all the different terms and all the different ingredients. Couldn't imagine contracts to have an API interface. So compliments to you on that journey. So Jake, to many of the listeners who can visit commonpaper.com today, you'll find that it is a self-servable product. It is PLG from the very get-go. And maybe we'll touch upon that a little bit. Jake, why don't you and Ben thought about investing in PLG? You could have gone the SLG route that most first-time founders or even second-time founders have seen go that particular route, but yet you invested in PLG from the very outset. What was the decision-making process that you had when you guys started that, hey, we should start our journey with PLG first approach? Yes. And the first company where Ben and I first worked together, RJ Metrics, he was a member of the team there. And that was a company with a sales-led model. So you needed to talk to a salesperson to buy the product. We had teams of analysts that would help with implementation. And I think there's a time and a place for that model where it can work. The The next company that you mentioned, Stitch, that had a product-led model, and that was a significantly more successful company on a number of dimensions. And so I think part of it is that we've seen both the models up close and had more success with one in terms of just what lends to, to our strengths. The other piece that I think is important to know is that part of what we're trying to do with Common Paper is to establish a standard. So to get lots and lots of folks to use the same base contract template, which has all kinds of benefits for everybody in the ecosystem. And if that is your strategy, then you want to remove as many barriers as possible to people getting the contract, using the contract, understanding the contract. And so it is dictated by the overall business strategy we have that a product-led go-to-market would be the right strategy for in support of that standardization piece. Okay, looks like Stitch probably helped propel that particular decision-making. Maybe I'll switch this around. As you started to build Common Paper, how did you guys figure out to get the first set of customers? Probably not the PLG route. It works much better at maybe after you reach a particular point. Could you maybe tell the story of how did you go? Talk to the first set of customers. Did you have PLG at that time? Uh, How did they actually, how did the customers start using your product? How did you get the feedback from them? Of course, probably not the PLG route. So could you tell the story on that one? Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. And yeah, it's ironic that, at least in my view, any good PLG success story starts with a lot of one-to-one human conversations. So you can't have a, a successful self-serve model without having a lot of banked conversations. So actually, before we actually like officially started working on the company, I did a whole lot of customer development calls and mm-hmm. I actually did like more than a hundred, which in hindsight is overkill. I don't think that, let's say I probably hit a, a point of diminishing marginal returns there. Yeah. And that was, I knew a lot about my personal challenge with contracts and I talked to Ben about his, but we didn't really know how generalized this problem was. And so we spent a lot of time talking to people, not so much about our potential solution, but more about their problem, what other solutions they had looked at, the state of things. It turns out there, there were a number of people who had actually very similar ideas and not that they were pursuing startups like that, but they were saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if everybody used the same contract? Or wouldn't it be great if there was software that wasn't just thrown around Word docs? And so there were, there were a lot of these like consistent themes that came up, both in terms of what the challenges people had and what they wanted out of a solution and what the gaps there were about the solutions that they had used. And then when we started working on the actual solution, we started building. Early on, yes, we did not have any way for people to just self-serve sign up. We did have a form where people could request access. It was a waiting list, so to speak. But in reality, we did not make people wait. We reached out almost immediately when someone signed up. And what we tried to do was 
do another customer discovery call and then onboard them into the product. The product was extremely rough in those early days. It did not do many things and the user experience around those things were not great, but it was really valuable to try to get people to use it. Some of them liked it, some of them didn't. We got lots of good feedback. Uh, and then eventually, as the product developed, once we reached the point where someone really legitimately could be successful on their own, we opened up signups and then soon after that had like our official launch. But yeah, there was a lot of high touch things before that. And then the other piece I'll add, this maybe gets ahead of, of where we are. But even then, after we had the true self-serve PLG like product in place, we then reached out to a whole lot of the people who signed up. And again, mm -hmm. tried to have live conversations with them to get their feedback. And so that's still an important part of what we do. We talk to a much smaller percentage of those people today because we just have a whole lot more people signing up for the product. But yeah, there was a lot of work to get to the point where someone could just sign up and be successful. Yeah. And the founders to go back to the people who have signed up previously and dropped off to reach back to them and ask them, hey, this is a new version of the product. You want to try it more? And did you find yep. them to come back to and did you had to coerce them to use the product or what was your learnings there? It's a big mix. And it wasn't like we were just blasting out to everybody saying, hey, use the product a month ago, try it again. It was more like some of it was, hey, I just saw you signed up and I think your product's really cool. I'm a big fan of your company or I use your tool or mm -hmm. hey, your old job. So we did a lot of work just looking at you used to work with my friend who I used to work with. And oh, okay. hey, would you be open to, to chatting with me? So really, especially like you can invest a lot of time for sign up when you don't have many signups. That's Correct. the luxury and challenge of the early days. And also we would take notes on someone would sign up. I'd have a conversation with them. And they would really need some feature we didn't have, or they would need an agreement that we didn't have. And then fast forward a month or something like that, and we have that, then that's a very natural time to go back to that person and say, hey, you gave me some great feedback. We took it to heart and we've actually built it. Would you mind giving it another shot? And we had a pretty good success rate on that. Certainly some people never responded. And it's something that I honestly wish we were even better at because it was more ad hoc and, and memory based. But yeah, that was definitely an important part of the strategy. Yeah. It's also interesting that you also built a sort of a community as well, right? Maybe you're calling it as a committee of lawyers and legal services. Were these the guys that you were just seeking advice from, or was it mostly customer referrals, or they were part of your feedback loop as well? They're definitely part of the feedback loop. And many of them, or at least some of, excuse me, the early members were sourced from that 100 conversations I had before we started working on the company. So the committee are actually the thing that they're most analogous to is contributors to an open source project. Hmm. So traditional open source, it's about software. There's developers who from lots of different backgrounds who contribute and they might write a little bit of code. They might write a lot of bit of code. And because of the nature of the open source license, it can all get put together and then synthesized into a version that people can download and use. And so we modeled basically the creation of our standard agreements on that process where we have over 45 attorneys who some are work at big law firms, some work at small law firms, some work in-house at big tech companies, some work in-house at small companies. But the, the commonality is that they all have a lot of experience with the types of agreements that we're working on and focused on. And we have one member of our team who, whose title, she's a, a lawyer, but her title mm -hmm. is actually head of legal ecosystem. And her job is to run a process and collect feedback from that whole uh, committee on what should be in an NDA and what should not be in an NDA and what are the things that should be fixed and what are the things that should be variable. And that for each of these different contract types. And then 
there's meetings, there's some people who get very involved and write drafts, there's some people who involve in live discussions, some people who answer surveys, some people who redline Word docs. There's all these different mechanisms by which those people give their input. And then Tiffany, the member of our team, she synthesizes all of that and collects it and packages it up and say, okay, this is the common paper NDA version one. And then that's released on our website and anybody can download it. Now, some of those people also use the agreement. Some of those people may use our software, but they're the primary relationship we have with them is these are experts on these agreements. And similar to how a contributor to the Linux open source project might write a patch to improve memory management, another member of the common paper committee might write some prose that covers what happens to a software license in a certain scenario. Does that make sense? It does. Compliments to you, Ben, and Tiffany to think about this. This seems very contrary. Lawyers investing the time to put it onto something which is open source. Lawyers contributing to open source seems very weird. And it's very likely that you might have some sweet deals for them in this particular way. But in the interest of time, as you build the community, could you maybe, we'll take maybe a timeline view of what you did. So it's maybe easier for listeners to grasp. So maybe we'll start with you probably registered your company around uh, early of 2021. You and Ben, you started mm -hmm. the product development and you had some set of early feedback from customers, maybe three, six months from there on. When did you decide to do self-serve? Was it on day one of your decision or was that after you hit a particular point saying, hey, now I have some core features that I need to go build. And that's where you decided to go self. And to just to maybe make it easy, what I mean by self-serve is, users coming to your website, clicking on the sign up button, automatically doing a user registration, you authenticating through any authentication provider, have some basic onboarding, automatically put them onto free plans and stuff like that. So when did you start investing and how long did it take for you to get that? Yeah, so we made the decision to be self-serve from the very beginning, but okay. when we actually launched the ability to be self-serve, that was probably after about four to six months, I would say. Yeah, something on that order of magnitude. So a, a single digit number of months after we actually started working, writing code. Yeah, something like about around four to six months. Got it. So Jake, as you and the team started on that particular journey, did you find some early success where people clicking on the sign up button or you had to go talk to them and send them some invitations? How did you go attract or acquire customers who were not part of your, maybe the initial 100 people that you had talked to? Yeah, it was a big mix of things. So some people stumbled upon us, maybe they were in Ben or my network. And when we mm -hmm. like posted on LinkedIn, the fact that we're working on this, they checked it out. I would say the thing that we did that got like the big initial push was really when we did our like formal launch. And that was when we put it on Product Hunt. We actually spent a lot of time that day just messaging all my contacts, texting people, emailing people, LinkedIn messaging, people I've, I hadn't potentially been in contact with years, just telling them, hey, we have this new thing. I'd love for you to try it out and maybe go participate in the conversation on Product Hunt. And so it was a lot of work to both get people to try it out, to help them amplify the launch by mm -hmm. liking or reposting on Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah, that was the big thing. And then we had done a little bit before that in terms of writing a blog post about our philosophy and sharing that. But I would say the first thing that really got us any material volume of self-serve signups was that initial launch on Product Hunt. That's also when we announced our fundraise. And so our investors helped promote it. Yeah, before that, it was very low volume, mostly just our friends. Got it, got it. Okay. 
And the success that you got from Product Hunt, was it more of people who just checking it out? I'm guessing just click on it or what were you expecting these people to do? I'm guessing by this time you may not have had a self-serve in-app checkouts where they can come and swipe their credit card and pay for the service, right? You probably did not have that. What did you have at the time of Product Hunt launch? Maybe let me ask from there on. Yeah, you're right. We did not have the means to charge them. I think what we were really hoping to get was people to use the product, to be engaged, and honestly to learn what the gaps were and what kind of person were our hypothesis right about who needed this and who liked it and what we needed to build? And I would say it was mixed. I'm very glad that we did it. We mostly got people kicking the tires and then not really getting super engaged. We got some users out of it. And I think there's it's hard to disaggregate exactly why that is. I think some of it may just be the audience of people at Product Hunt were not people that were necessarily looking for a solution to manage their contracts. They were just looking for cool stuff and they saw it and they said, that's cool. And then they went on to the next thing. And I think the other thing, if I'm being realistic, is that our product was not amazing back then. It was missing a lot of things. So it's not a shocker that a lot of people tried it out and then didn't come back. I think we, I don't remember if we even had a pricing page at that point. We might have had a pricing page and we just figured, okay, there was some threshold for, and this actually, we did this at Stitch too when we launched, where we had a threshold of if you go above X, you will have to pay us. And we just agreed, we'll build out the ability for people to pay soon. And if people hit that threshold before we build it, we'll just send them a link and say, hey, you're such a great user. We've decided to give you another month free. No one's going to be upset about that. And the good and the bad news is in the early days, no one got close to the threshold. We didn't end up having to give them a special grace period. Yeah, so too high a threshold then. Too high a threshold, but also not enough engagement and repeat usage. Got it, got it. So it looks like your product hunt launch, your primary hypothesis was to go find out who's your right ICP. Are you looking to maybe iterate on some product feedback? What are the gaps associated to? Will potential customers even use a product like that? That became the basis of the new features that you build. I'm guessing that feedback went into your pipeline of all the things that you had to build. You're correct. Where that was very influential in helping us decide which things to prioritize. And we already, of course, had a long list of things that we knew we wanted to add to the product and improve to the product. But there's nothing like someone who's trying to use your product and then gets frustrated and then complains to help you decide that something should go to the top of the list. And we had this concept called, which I actually got from my friend Gorkum, who's the founder of a company called Qualytics. He has this concept of super serving where it's their self-serve, but then there's, can you just give someone such a unbelievable experience because they complain about something and that thing is implemented a day or two later? And so sometimes we would do that where, again, when we had very small number of users, we could just stack their thing. And we wouldn't do that for something that was misaligned with our vision. But a lot of the things that people were asking for were like, oh, yes, we, we're obviously going to build that eventually but why don't we That's build that immediately for this customer to see if we can really get them to commit. Got it, which means that by that time when you did a production launch, you were at an engineering maturity level where you can build some things and you can push it out to production as fast as possible, I'm guessing, which allows you to iterate. But here's an interesting question about maybe the production launch. I wasn't aware that you did product and launch so early in your cycle. As the users were signing up to your product, How did you get to know about them? Who are these users? 
did you do some KYC about them? Did you have some simple onboarding to understand which companies they belong to? Because it looks like yours is mostly for B2B product. So much of that right. is at the account level and not so much at the user level. How did you know about the users and the companies they belong to? Did you look that up manually and then try to correlate that or you use some tools? How did you go about it? Yes. What we did is we created a channel in our Slack instance that's called App Updates. Mm. And it's basically anybody, anytime someone signs up for Common Paper, there's an entry in App Updates and it says there's the or a subset of the information that they supply when they sign up. It's Jake Stein from Common Paper signed up and here's his email address. And then there's a couple other key events that we have entries in app updates for. Jake Stein sent his first contract or Jake Stein signed his first contract. And so we would watch that. And that was the part that was automated. Everything else was manual. And yeah. really what I did is I would copy the email address from Slack, put it into my email client, which happens to be superhuman. That does a pretty good job of suggesting what the person's LinkedIn URL is, mm -hmm. as well as just services the, the domain of the email, which is easy to tell. And then I would look at their website and look at their LinkedIn page. And sometimes, and I would have seen, had they been totally successful? Had they signed a contract? Had they just signed, sent one and never signed it? And that, plus their LinkedIn, plus their website, that would determine what kind of email I sent them. And I, I had a template that sometimes I wouldn't customize at all. And sometimes I would highly customize if they seemed like an engaged user or if they seemed like a really great prospect. Let me try to unpack that primarily for myself. You had some kind of telemetry associated to key events within your product. In, in your case, it could be signing up to a first contract, a second contract, and things like that. And you probably mm -hmm. had some idea or an inkling of what that customer journey looks like. And you, you put that and you call that as an app update. You did manual mm -hmm. lookups. Superhuman probably is, is a good way to go do it. You could have done a couple of other ways as well, but you chose superhuman. I'm guessing by that time, you might have already had some kind of a simplified onboarding or was it just like people sign up and they, and you throw in a bunch of features and all the kitchen sink at them. I'm guessing not. You had some onboarding, right? At that time. Yeah. We had some concept of, Hey, you've signed up, tell us about yourself. And then which of these contract templates do you want to use this is the next one? And then we can help you customize this contract template. And then the suggestion of, okay, now you have a template. Why don't you sit, send a contract to somebody? So we had that flow, which is different from if you're an existing user and you just sign in and try to do something. So yeah, it was a relatively rudimentary version of that, but you're, you're right. We had that in place. Got it. Got it. And any customers or any users who signed up the first contract, did you actually talk to them? Did you reach out to them? I'm guessing, let's say there were hundreds of users signing up to your product, maybe about 60, 70, 80% of them don't even reach beyond a particular point. But the first ones that reach the first milestone, I'm guessing that's signing up the first contract. Did you talk to them at that time or did you let the software do the talking? It was a mix. And honestly, some of it just depended on how busy I was. Like on some days, if we had a whole lot of signups, like I definitely wasn't reaching out to every single person who signed up. Sometimes I just, ha I was available. So I reached out to everybody or some, it didn't, like my bar varied both with just what my opportunity cost was. And, and the trend line has been that in the early days we were reaching out to everybody. And then over time we reach out to a smaller and smaller percentage because our signup volume is many times larger now than it was back then. So, and our team has grown a little bit, but not that much. 
So we are just choosier in terms of who we proactively reach out to. And of course, some people reach out to us. We also have some you know, automated emails with just, here's a couple of things you might want to know, but we have only added those later. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we'll run out of time very quickly, but let me touch upon pricing plans. I know you mentioned some time back that at the time of product hunt launch, you did not yet have maybe a pricing page yet. And even if you had, it was very rudimentary. So what was your approach towards pricing? And maybe could you expound on how did you think about free plans? How did you go about looking at pricing tiers? Any success stories around conversions or anything around the self-serve plans? So we got a lot of questions about pricing even before we had a pricing page. So I realized it was, this is like a tool used by businesses for a fairly mission critical piece. So they were concerned that they would start relying on it and a cost would come out of nowhere. And they just, I think, wanted the confidence that we were a business that would not disappear. So the first version of our pricing, it was created so that our early users would be comfortably in the free tier because I was only creating that pricing page to answer the question that people were asking. Like I, my, my vision was these kinds of customers will probably either be on the free tier or pay very little. So my goal was not, can I monetize the people that we already have? It was more, can I just provide an answer to the early user? The second version of the pricing, which we released in January of this year, 2023, That was when we had seen a lot more usage and we had a stronger conviction around how we would monetize. And that was the goal definitely there was to start monetizing in a bigger way. I would say that pricing model was based on the number of customers our customers had. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, it was a big mistake. It was confusing. It was not a metric that people are familiar with. It was also backward looking rather than forward looking. There was a lot of things that were wrong with it. And then two months ago, we updated our pricing again. So we're now on pricing model number three. And that has been uh, dramatically more successful, both in terms of accelerating our revenue growth and the, uh, the pace of new customer acquisition. And then also just like people are not confused by it. We don't get a lot of questions about how does it work. People just get it and then they make a decision. And, and this new pricing model is more closer to what people are, are used to. There's a couple different packages that correspond to different stages of companies. Each package has different features and value limits. And then there's just a per seat price for the different tiers. So there's a free tier, there's a $25 per user per month tier and a $50 per user per month. So it's, I'm guessing I'm trying to unpack this and ap- apologies if I'm reducing this to very simple. So you went with mm-hmm. a per seat model because you're a B2B, you know, you're selling to B2B they will have customers. Initially, you had a per customer or a per tenant model, but instead you went with a per seat model. Is that right? Correct. And that very first one we created was per agreement, like per agreement signed. Per agreement. And the second model was per customer. So as you could sign as many agreements with each customer as you want. And then the new one, the most recent one is per seat. And that is by far the most successful. It's very simple, which is why when I found it, hey, this makes sense. And we're not so many people, so per seat makes perfect sense. Uh, I know we are out of time, but but maybe one small story about any success or failures in conversion, specifically the free plan to a paid plan conversion. What were you expecting? You you don't have to maybe share specific details. You're a private company. You don't have to necessarily share all of that. Uh, But any ballpark, histogramically, if you will, were you in that initial, hey, almost 99% of them will probably failing, right? And 
maybe one out of maybe even thousand were signing up. What, what were your conversion rates as a hypothesis and how do you feel about it now? Yeah, the way that our pricing works is that everybody starts in the free plan. So mm -hmm. you, you can sign up and then if you want one of the paid features, you can upgrade, but everybody is in the free plan by default. And that's always been the case. It's interesting. I was actually just looking at our time to conversion data over time. And with our old pricing model, we literally never had anybody who started on the signed up and then converted to paid in the first 30 days. I think the fastest one was maybe 33 days. The longest one was something like 400 days and a lot of things in between. And many people are still on that free plan. And then when we rolled out this new pricing model, almost, it's only been around for two months, but we've effectively doubled our customer count in two months. And almost all of them were, I looked down the line at seven days, eight days, three days, 15 days. And so it, it's surprising. We made the product somewhat better in the past two months, but it's not hugely different. And I think it's really just a, a signal that with a different and better pricing model, you can convert much better. And we grandfathered all the old users in so they can stay on the old pricing if they prefer, mm -hmm. but it seems like people just get it much better. And it's always surprising to me how much leverage a better pricing model can have. It's hard to get right. And I'm sure there are improvements we could make to ours, but this was a big improvement. Congratulations. You've reached the pricing market fit, if there's a term yeah. like that. But uh, to all the listeners, we will share out the journey that Jake and his team has had on the PLG course of action. We'll probably put some timelines around it. But thank you, Jake. It was a wonderful experience to learn and probably a little more course for you to have jog your memory lane and then look at events which happened in the past. But I think for our listeners, they'd really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing so much details. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Listeners, if you have any feedback, please do share it with us. And until then, keep thriving. And I will see you back in the next podcast very soon. Take care. Bye.